This podcast does not represent any financial or investment advice. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and are not intended to represent the opinions of Jump Capital or Jump Trading Group. This is The Jump Off Point with Jason Felger, an original podcast from Jump Capital. What does the wealth transfer over the next decade, from baby boomers to their heirs, mean for financial advisors? That's the $70 trillion question we asked our special guest, Bill Harris, and Jump Capital's very own Peter Johnson. We have two amazing guests today. Let's welcome Peter Johnson, who is my colleague at Jump Capital, who leads our fintech and uh, crypto areas, and someone who needs no introduction, but he's a pretty damn impressive person. So I'm going to do it anyways, and that's Bill Harris. Um, Bill has founded or been CEO of over 10 fintech and security companies, some iconic ones, including PayPal, Intuit, Personal Capital, and a couple more even since then. And he's served on numerous boards, RSA Security, GoDaddy, and SuccessFactors. Peter, Bill, thanks for joining. Our pleasure. Thank you. Bill, I, I haven't had a chance to talk to you much. I mainly just know you from your experiences and, and the companies you've been at. Bill, where I wanted to start and just get your broad perspective and any specific examples is I went through some of the companies you've, you've been a part of from the very beginning, PayPal and Personal Capital, of course, Chipsoft. You're not just a serial entrepreneur. You've done it predominantly in fintech. And I, I think that's even more rare than you know someone who's done the number of companies that you have. What do you look to? Are there trends? Are there signals that you're kind of constantly paying attention to macro consumer trends, or even just within industry that have kind of driven that repeat entrepreneurial drive within the industry and, and helped spur the starting of some of those companies? You know, I'd say every every situation is different, but perhaps if I was forced to take the long view, it's pretty attractive when you find an enabling technology platform or a shift in tech platforms. And I've been around here long enough that I remember many of these decade-long transitions. And so if you go back far enough, the 70s, it was mainframes. The 80s, service bureaus, the 90s, desktop software. And that's when I started working with Chipsoft and Intuit and TurboTax and Quicken and QuickBooks. The 2000s, it was all web. The 2010s, all mobile. And now I think what we're looking at for the next decade is a multi-screen lifestyle where all of these things have to be brought back together. But throughout this, what you've seen is movement from centralized delivery platforms to local delivery platforms back to centralized delivery platforms. And in each case, the way that you deliver functionality and information to the customer has changed. At the same time, the customer's real needs rarely change. I mean, think about investing. It's the same thing today as it was 50 years ago. You need to find the right securities. You need to create a balanced portfolio. You have to have insight and information, all the the basic needs. And also you have to have the personal liaison, the human interaction as well. All of these things don't change, but the technology delivery platform does. And with each replatforming, there are often opportunities to go at the same customer needs, but in a new way with faster, cheaper, and if you're good, better solutions. And that goes back to personal capital. And I'd love to maybe just touch on quickly, like 
that first kind of introduction, that meeting? How'd you guys get to really build that relationship back then? I've known Peter for a long time. He's uh, frankly one of the best venture capitalists that I've worked with. I think it was uh, in Chicago. I think we met with you and two of your colleagues. I think it was at a bar. And then subsequently, you you know, when you got us interested in working with you and you with us, I think you then took us on a tour of your relatively impressive headquarters in Chicago. Based on that, I came to the conclusion that you and your team knew the quantitative side of finance about as well as anybody. That was part of the reason that I really wanted to get you guys aboard. Yeah, I remember it was 2014. And I had uh, a thesis on how wealth management was going to change and was looking for you know, a company that was going about it the right way and, and found, found you and found personal capital and was just, just amazed with what you were doing. I hunted you down. You were actually very hard to get a hold of initially. I got Brian Asher at Venrock, eventually made the introduction. And then, yeah, we, we met in Chicago and, and hit it off and quite a ride over, over several years there. And with personal capital, Bill, when we met, what you, what you said, it all sounds very intuitive. But for example, with personal capital at the time, and still is, it was very innovative for you, what you were doing, that you had these amazing best-in-class financial tools for people to manage their money, pairing that with real-life financial advisors. It sounds intuitive, but really, you saw that before anybody else. How, how did you see that that was the future of wealth management? This one, actually, I don't think was that tough. If you look at what everyone was doing at the time, there were two types of investors, advised or self-service. And those were actually the labels that the industry gave to those people. If you were an advised investor, you had access to human advisors, but not to real-time information. If you were self-service, you had real-time information. You didn't have human advisors. And it was like two different worlds. And it didn't have to be that imaginative to think, well, there may be a, a large number of people who would want both. And yet the structure of the industry is such that that just didn't happen. There was uh, all the traditional investment firms were purely advised. The discount firms and the new fintechs were purely self-service. And so it was a gaping hole in the market. Understanding that this could be something that customers would really enjoy or benefit from, that's not too tough. What was tough, I think, was how do you put that together into a package that is on the one hand integrated, on the second hand, efficient and low cost. And that's where the hard work was actually. One of the things that stood out to me recently that I read, Bill, was we're going through a generational transfer of wealth. I think 70 trillion is the number I've seen quoted. And you talked about the wealth management industry. Is that wealth transfer going to create another change? Are there going to be winners and losers? Or do you see kind of a a status quo, and it's just a matter of the shifting of dollars between generations? Well, I think if, if you're talking about the industry, there'll be a, a big impact and big winners, big losers. If you look at the, at the way people invest and who they invest with, it is highly stratified by age. And so the Merrill Lynch's of the world, they're probably at the average age is over 65. If you look at the personal capitals of the world, the average age is, let's call it 45. And if you look at the robo-advisors, the average age is probably still under 30 or maybe low 30s. And so when the assets are passed from one generation to the next, and particularly, let's say, the over 65 generation to the, their offspring, I believe most of those assets are going to flow out of 
the uh, financial institutions that their parents used into the financial institutions that they are already using. If you're 45 years old or that ilk and you're reasonably successful, then you already have your own relationships and your own methods of uh, handling your, your money. So I think we'll see big change in the industry that mirrors the changes in the investors. And what will that mean for banks and financial institutions? Will they be able to adapt to maintain customers or will they really be disrupted and displaced by fintech upstarts? Well, I think they're going to be disrupted and and displaced, but not necessarily by fintech upstarts, or at least not uh, exclusively by fintech upstarts. If you go back to the, the generational pattern that we were just talking about, there are some major financial institutions that are very strong in this middle-aged segment. You know, you look at Vanguard or Schwab or Fidelity versus some of the more traditional uh, organizations or many of the banks. I think they'll be big winners. And so even amongst the traditional firms, there'll be a big distinction between those people who, first of all, have advanced their offerings sufficiently on the technology side, but secondly, have already competed for the younger generation, and here I'm not saying the millennials, I'm saying the, gen- the middle generation, and one. And so they'll be big beneficiaries as well as the new technology-based uh, firms as well. I think the fidelities and vanguards of the world will get significantly more of the money than uh, pure fintechs and new breed uh, institutions, but the rates of growth for the fintechs will be astronomical. I mean, at at Personal Capital, we went, I think, 10 years in a row at 50% or higher growth rates per year. It's pretty exceptional. Where does that leave traditional financial advisors in, in that future world? Well, as you know, at Personal Capital, we embrace the notion of human financial advisors. But I think there's a big difference between a human financial advisor that's integrated with great tech and a human financial advisor that's on his or her own, which could be serious, actually on their own, but which also could be, well, you know, I've got the Maryland shingle. And so I've got the Maryland's name on my door, but I'm really an independent agent doing my own thing. And by the way, if I ever get tired of Merrill Lynch, I'll just go across the street. And now I'm with a different brokerage. Traditional stock brokers If that's what you mean by financial advisors, I think they're in deep trouble. And I think they should be because they're they're not providing serious value for uh, their customers, not only because of the inefficiency of the human model, the lack of the technology enhancements, but also because to the extent that they view themselves as stock brokers, stock pickers, that type of advisor, well, I, I think it's not a place where people can add value to the average consumer household. But what's the role of human advisors? I think the role of human advisors is on the upswing. That's because we are humans and we need to interact with other humans, particularly about things that are as important to us as our money. It's a hefty transition from big picture and kind of trends and and the things that you've seen over the years to what's been happening in the markets more lately. There's really no setup to retail traders and what's going on with the hedge funds um, other than just, do you have a perspective? And do you see any 
positive changes that come out of that, particularly ones that might inspire new companies, new startups because of some things that have surfaced over the last period of time that this has been happening? Well, if you if you are talking about things like GameStop, I think it's a disaster. I really don't care whether the hedge funds win or the retail folk win or nobody wins or everybody wins. But from the point of view of long-term investing, it's just lunacy. Lunacy for anyone to attempt to, first of all, manipulate stock prices in any way, whether it's retail or hedge fund. But secondly, on the retail side, and I guess the same thing is true on the hedge funds, but when you put so much of your net worth into something that has got so much volatility, much of that volatility self-created, there's no good end to it. Yes, many people will make a ridiculous amount of money in a ridiculously short period of time, and just as many people will lose that much money that quickly. And there's no social benefit for that. There's no investment benefit for that. Regardless of whether you're a retail customer or a professional investor, this kind of volatility, this kind of needless and artificial volatility, this kind of risk, none of it makes any sense. So I don't get into the question of whether the hedge fund people were justified or the retail investors were justified or Robinhood was justified. It's a pox on everyone's house. This is not investing. It's not smart. It's not healthy. And anybody who asks me, I say, run away. Speaking about volatility and assets that you've spoken with strong opinions about, that, that we both have strong opinions about, I do have to ask about Bitcoin. I am a believer that everyone should have at least some allocation to Bitcoin in their portfolio. You, on the other hand, have called Bitcoin a scam. I think you've called it like one of the greatest scams in the past. What's your current view on Bitcoin? Well, I think it's an even bigger scam today because you were right. I mean, people should have been invested in Bitcoin as an investment, as a speculative investment. It has been doing very well. However, I continue to believe that it's uh, there's the Wizard of Odds. There's, There's no one behind the curtain. Here's what it boils down to. For something to have value, it has to have use. What is the utility of Bitcoin? And we can go into some of the details of why, but people say that it's a, it's a payment method. People say that it's a store of value. People say, I don't know, a lot of things. Is it a good payment method? Absolutely not. I mean, first of all, it's not ubiquitous and so many payment methods are. I mean, it's tiny, tiny in terms of the penetration of actually where you could actually spend Bitcoin. Even more important, the value of Bitcoin is so volatile that it's the last thing you'd ever want to use in a payment network. A store of value. Is it a good store of value? Well, if a store of value means you keep your value safe, then I'll say the same thing. Volatility makes it an awful store of value. Now, is it a good speculative investment? Sure has been. But again, to support that value over the long haul, there has to be some utility, some reason why someone would want uh, Bitcoin. At the moment, I don't see anything that it can do that can't be done better in some other mechanism. What I think is the core innovation of Bitcoin and of crypto more broadly 
is that it enables for the first time ever, anyone in the world to send anybody else in the world value on the internet without the need for a trusted third party. I'm curious your take on that because you probably know, you know, moving money on the internet, you co-founded PayPal. You, you know that better than anybody else in the world. Well, I absolutely don't know this better than anybody else. Uh, you know, but let me say this. Your premise was that the great thing about this is that you don't need a trusted party. I believe that's a flaw, not a benefit. And why? Well, first of all, in fact, you do have trusted parties. You trust the miners and you trust the collective and you trust, there's all sorts of people that you have to trust. And by the way, pay in one way or another. Then you have to trust exchange operators because you know nobody does this, you know, the theoretical thing. I, I keep a uh, private key, you keep your private key. We never translate into and out of fiat currency and all the rest. It's a, a silly conceptual notion that has no mirror in the real world. But more importantly, whether you need a trusted party, whether in fact Bitcoin relies on a whole series of trusted parties, put all that aside. I think a trusted party involved in financial transactions is a positive, it's a good thing. I'll give you one example. One of the huge problems with Bitcoin is that there is no governance. If you lose your private key, if someone steals your private key, if for some reason some transaction goes astray, there's no way to recover. And if you're in a system with trusted parties who have some degree of governance over that system, all those things, there's at least a possibility that they can be uh, adjusted, unwound, or, or solved. So in other words, let's differentiate between uh, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and then blockchain. On the currency side, do we need a new currency? I say resounding no. We have plenty of currencies. The value of the major currencies is they are, once again, ubiquitously accepted and relatively stable values and all the rest. Do we need a new currency? Do we need yet one more currency or 12 more currency or 100 more currencies that their only purpose really is to then move money or convert money back and forth from one currency to the next? Do we need new currencies? Absolutely not. We've got more than we can use already. Do we need a new system for the exchange of currency? Yes, we do need new systems. I mean, the old systems, if you look at SWIFT or anything like that, I mean, they're god-awful, god-awful, absolutely agreed. But what we need is fast, secure networks. And that does not necessarily mean blockchain. Uh, there are lots of ways to, to do very high security with um, cryptographically secured cloud-based databases and, and things like that. I think that is the real crux of it. Do you want to use as your system, regardless of what currency is flowing on it, and you could have a stable coin, but regardless of what currency you're using, what system underneath, do you want to use something that is unrecoverable, as we just talked about with a blockchain, and is difficult to scale, hugely compute intensive, and where the one reason that people say it's superior to what has gone before is its security. In what way is it more secure? Well, it gives you an immutable history. So nobody can change the past. Fine. I buy that. When was the last time that the history being mutable was the way that somebody attacked a financial system? 
It simply doesn't happen. So yes, it's high security, but it's against a threat that doesn't exist. Instead, where is the largest amount of uh, risk right now? Well, it's in identity verification and authentication. And on the authentication side, you know, what you're doing is without an, an exchange between you and the system, if you're just taking your private key and holding onto your private key, what you have done is created a single factor authenticator to whatever amount of money that you have. The rest of the financial world is running away from single factor authentication as fast as it possibly can. So I say, in fact, it's a less secure system than others that we could build. I agree with you on the, the point that we need better payment systems, that centralized systems are often, I would say most of the time, the, the better solution. But I also would, would counter that there are situations where, where it's not, where you do want a decentralized solution because the rules are changed sometimes. There are situations where you want a decentralized and, not, and ungoverned uh, solution. If you're doing criminal activity, you absolutely need that. And I'm sure there are some other use cases. I think there are. I think if you're in Cyprus, when the, the government seizes deposits from depositors, if you're in India, when they demonetize uh, you know, bills, if you're in Argentina or Venezuela, when there's massive inflation, I think there's a lot of you know, times where you, you want a system that isn't centrally controlled. Let me make sure that I understand what you're proposing as the advantage. Is the advantage that it's a better store of value? In other words, rather than keeping your money in a currency that has big inflation, you would want to put it in Bitcoin instead? Or is the advantage you're talking about the ability to escape if something bad happens? I think it's both. I think that there is the, the use case for crypto, and especially particularly stable coins, for being a new money movement rail, an alternative rail. If you don't want to use or you can't use the existing rails, dollars on crypto rails can be a way to move money around the world. That's one. And then two would be, I see crypto as a as an alternative store of value, a speculative and option on a store of value. It's not a store of value yet, but it has the potential to be, and it'll be volatile on the way there. But it, in my opinion, does gold better than gold does gold. Great. So... <laughs> I'll buy that. And I'll also say that I don't believe in gold. <laughs> Why in the world, uh, when you could own, I don't know, oil futures, something with real intrinsic value, why in the world would you want gold? Why in the world would people say, well, gold, this arbitrary commodity with relatively few practical uses should be the standard of value? I, I don't believe in gold. And I don't believe in e-gold as a result. I, I think that's fair. I, I highly respect uh, your opinion. It's very different opinion than mine, but it's certainly well thought through. I highly respect my opinion as well. And it has been wrong, <laughs> at least from the value point of view. It has been wrong now for, I don't know, six years, eight years. One of these days, I hope to be right. But so far, you win. <laughs> There's probably an elegant transition to this next kind of asset class that I'd like to get your thoughts on. But one area we've been spending more and more time on is thinking about how technology has enabled fractional ownership and fractional ownership that a lot of people haven't been able to access previously. Land, certain types of land, farmland, for instance, income generating, art, and it kind of goes and goes. It's even down into the you know, sneaker world. But 
you know, the idea that fractional ownership and the utilization of technology can allow more people to access that asset. How do you think about that? Is that an interesting potential asset in people's portfolio? Let me separate it out into two different things. The assets themselves, and then the act of fractionalizing them. The act of fractionalizing them, I think, is fabulous. I think it should be applied essentially on all asset classes, including traditional securities. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're a, a retail investor, rather than having 25 shares of, uh, of Apple, what really should happen is that there should be an omnibus account someplace that has thousands or hundreds of thousands of shares of Apple, and then you're just being sub-accounted on a nominal basis, uh, ownership into a small fraction of that uh, total, which is the same thing then you can do with farmland or timber or sneakers. That's a far more efficient way to transfer ownership than trying to you know, actually sell securities on an open market, make trades, or certainly you know, trying to sell little pieces of farmland. So fractionalization, I think, is absolutely the way almost every asset class should ultimately be held. And I think it's one of the great things that the technology can do for investing writ broad because it makes everything fast and cheap. Now, the question of asset classes, well, I think it'd be great if, if people had access to alternative asset classes, typically they don't have direct access to, as to which ones, at what values, I think people much more experienced in any of those asset classes would be the ones to ask. If you ask me to make a, a quick guess, I'd say buy some farmland and don't buy sneakers except the ones you need in your closet. It's a good long-term piece of advice in general, I think. What do you take of the regulations that regulate, you know, the accredited investor regulations that, that regulate who can invest in what? Well, I think actually there's an important function to be done there because to use the word that's used, unsophisticated investors are unsophisticated and they often can't protect themselves. That's, that's the whole concept Unfortunately, I think the way that accredited investors have been defined, the way that disclosures uh, have been encrusted over the years, I think the system today needs to be rethought. One of the things that I think is pretty interesting is what's happening with Reg A+, other ways to allow non-accredited investors to participate in early stage or private companies. As we're thinking about trends and thinking about technologies, not to have you share all your secrets, but are there trends that you see today and coming up that you think are of you know, extreme interest and you know, a big part of our audience are founders who are thinking about different ways to approach fintech opportunities? Opportunities in technology. I think we need to find the next packaging of functionality, the next after the mobile app because the mobile app itself is getting pretty stale. Uh, everybody knows how it works. They all look the same. And most importantly, distribution is horrendous. You have to go through the app store, make the download, and then actually put it on your homepage. 90 plus percent of the uh, usage, app usage today, is in the top 10 providers. If you're not in the top 10, it's very difficult for people to get people to find your app and or install your app and or use your app. So mechanisms that can move beyond the packaging 
of a mobile app, I think can offer great opportunities. That's on the technology side or the technology platform side and the financial services arena. To me, the tremendous opportunity is to reintegrate what has become a horrifically fragmented landscape of products and institutions and offerings. And we have taken something that should be remarkably simple. I mean, in most instances, banking, for instance, what is it? It's addition and subtraction. You get into investments and you got multiplication. We have so remarkably overcomplicated the entire process of what you do to manage your money. And don't get me started once you get tax considerations in there. We've done our customers a disservice. I think there are huge opportunities in many directions to take disparate products, break them down, and reintegrate them, and then radically simplify them so that people can actually understand what they're doing with their money. And you know, do you have any thoughts or maybe even a little bit of advice for entrepreneurs and founders who are, are coming into this industry or working through it? Well, a couple of things. I think it's a fabulous, fabulous opportunity. Personally, I love it. I've had such a good time over the past couple of decades. But I think it's not for everyone. There is a grass is always greener. You know, you can have a good job at a good company doing good things and look over to see someone who's doing a startup and finding some success and uh, think, gosh, I'd really love to do that. Well, it quite likely or quite possibly could be a great thing for you to do. However, think about a couple of things. Are you comfortable in ambiguity? Can you wake up every morning and not know what in the heck you're going to do today? not really know what your product is going to be, not quite know who you're going to sell it to, not have any idea whether it's going to work, and realize that you probably have to go through a couple of iterations before you strike on something that has a chance of working. You have to be comfortable, not just with risk, but with lack of knowing. And that's a very hard thing for many people. And there's good reason why it should be. You know, most of, most of the world should be uh, focused productively focused on things where we know what the outcome is going to be. So that's the first thing. And the other thing I'd say is this, where is the source of your inspiration? Do it because you have an inspiration rather than just because you want to start something or be an entrepreneur. Where is the source of the information? What is the thing that you would like to make better? One interesting thing I've I've seen over time, innovation rarely comes from people who know too much. If you've been doing the same thing, for 20 years and you're really good at it, you're the expert. Well, it's just unlikely, no matter how smart and creative you are, it's unlikely that the next new idea is going to come from you. At the same time, if you're somebody who knows nothing, if you are completely divorced from the problem set, you don't even know what the problem is, then obviously you're unlikely to do anything innovative as well. So where does it come from? It often comes from people who are not in, but rather adjacent to a particular function. So it's somebody who's close enough to see what the problem is, but is not steeped in the existing solution. And for me personally, that's been a terrific formula for a long time. Uh, Yes, I have been within financial services for 30 years, but doing different slices of financial services from online payments to tax preparation software, to accounting, to investment, wealth management, to uh, brokerage systems, And in every one of the new companies that I founded, it was in a specific area of financial technology that I had never done before. And so on the one hand, I was familiar with the industry, but on the other hand, 
the particular challenges were new, and that made it easier for me to think differently than what had gone before. You've also, you've raised a lot of venture capital over the years in your different companies and from a variety of folks, different firms, different people. What have you looked for? What, what would you pass along as the experiences of you know, finding the right partner if in fact a company and a founder is, is going to go down that journey of raising capital in that form? There are two, as, two aspects. One is you need money. And at the end of the day, you're going to get it wherever you can get it. And it typically means talking to uh, many people because one person's great idea doesn't quite latch on to someone else. Let's say that you're in the happy situation of uh, having people who desire to give you some money. How do you choose the right partners? Look for people who, first of all, understand that the process is not going to be a straight line and that we're going to wake up tomorrow and think something a little different than we thought today. And probably a month from now, it'll be a lot different. And they're not scared of that. And they don't feel that is, that's failure. If, okay, you're, we're now saying what we told you a month ago, we now think is wrong because that's the process. And that's the ambiguity in which you have to simmer of a new project like this. Second, look for people who can separate the big picture from the small. And the big picture is, first of all, how big is the opportunity that you're attacking? And secondly, how good is your team? And then once they establish those two things in their mind, then what they do is become, I'll use the word cheerleaders, but it's so much more deep than that. But as opposed to managers or directors, where they're going to judge what you do and judge whether you're hitting your goals and your targets and hold you to accountability. In the early stages of a company, that's not what you need. What you need is someone who is a supporter and a guide. And the reason I say cheerleader is that as fluffy as that sounds, that's often what's needed. It is hard when you're just starting something brand new and you have not much money and not many people and you have no idea whether the ideas are going to work and half of the things you try, no, 90% of the things you try are going to be wrongheaded and you have to work like blazes, it's tough to get up every morning with the confidence and the energy to go attack that bear. And having as partners, as financing partners, people who understand that this is as much an emotional process as a financial process, that's key. And I'll just say, for instance, with regard to Peter and my interaction with Peter, he came in a little bit later in the process. So it wasn't this completely uncertain, very early startup days. But we were still at the point where we didn't know more questions than we knew. And so one of the great things about Peter is that he was focused on being an advisor as opposed to a director. By that, I mean somebody who was on our side and trying to help us make the right decisions as opposed to somebody who was sitting in judgment looking for accountability. Thank you, Bill. It was a, an honor to invest behind you and behind personal capital. I thank you for letting us have that opportunity. It has been my pleasure. And I hope we have the opportunity to work together again. As you know, I've got a new one started. I'm not uh, talking about it and I'm financing it myself at the beginning, but at some point I will probably be inviting you to that same bar in Chicago. I absolutely cannot wait for that. 
we talked about the financial markets and Bitcoin and a lot around technology and user experiences and and even you know some just alternative asset classes. And, and of course, your perspective and advice on on starting companies and and the processes there, Bill. But the things that I wrote down along the way, the, the really the two things I wrote down is regardless of the complexity of the technology, a lot of what you said was the simplicity that that needs to be there. The simplicity of the experience for the consumer and the simplicity in, in the system itself. It's really important to not lose track of that. And then the other, as much as we've talked about technology, it's the human interactions and the human relationships. One, obviously you spurred that in the wealth management industry, but also a lot of what you just said as far as just those interactions and the relationships as you're just starting any company. And so they're salient points for us to take home. And just want to thank you again for spending the time with us, Peter. Thank you. And obviously, as you left us with, hopefully this is another part of our journey and building a relationship with you and investing behind you. But we sure as hell have had a good time so far. So thanks again for the time, Bill. Thank you. And I'll just reflect what you just said. In most of business, but particularly in growth businesses, Nothing is a transaction. Everything is a relationship. Millennials may be poised to be the wealthiest generation in American history, but it's how they manage their money that will count. Thank you so much to Bill Harris and my Jump Capital colleague, Peter Johnson, for joining us on the show. The Jump Off Point with Jason Felger is an original podcast from Jump Capital. If you have an idea about the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, contact us at podcast at jumpcap.com. Thanks for listening. Listening.